Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. We'll be talking about the trouble in Iran, which is quite serious trouble, not as serious as the news media and the West is trying to make out, uh, but it is uh, prolonged and quite intensive and certainly bloody and violent confrontation taking place between those billions of people around the world who wish Iran to survive, to be an independent state, plowing its own furrow in the world and those millions in the world that seek to bring down the political system there and color Iran, uh, I don't know, rainbow, purple, yellow, yellow and blue, whatever it is that they would like Iran to be, it is not as an independent and powerful Islamic country. It's not, as I said on Wednesday past, that there are no reasons for people to be angry in Iran. There are multiple reasons to be so. Many of those are connected to the fact that Iran has been sanctioned within an inch of its life by the United States and to a certain extent its satrapies in Europe year after year after year causing hunger and pain to the Iranian people and designed to cause hunger and pain to the Iranian people including that half of the Iranian people who are women. I mention that point because Western commentators are very concerned about the rights of Iranian women, except the right to live freely, to eat, and to have a fully properly functioning economy that is not besieged by the rest of the world in the name of liberty and the liberation of, amongst others, women, of course. And, of course, these same Western commentators, and I include amongst them, perhaps particularly, the liberal, feminized wing, men and women and others, uh, who focus on the presence, compulsory presence, on the head of Iranian women of a loose-fitting scarf, which they call the hijab, but which is not actually a hijab. If you want to see an actual hijab, you would look next door in our best friend, Saudi Arabia. That's if you could see a woman on the street or in public life, in civic activities of any kind, you would find them very tightly hijabed indeed. You'd find them burkat from top to toe. But oddly, none of the liberals, none of the Western politicians or commentators ever have a word to say about that. Nobody calls for sanctions on Saudi Arabia until they allow Saudi women out on the street without being accompanied by a male guardian. Nobody uh, is raising a hue and cry about one of my former constituents, now sentenced to 34 years in a Saudi prison, a woman, for tweeting 
tweeting on a platform, Twitter, the biggest single owner of which is a prince of the Saudi royal family. Nobody, I tried, was interested in the fact that Saudi Arabian women were not allowed to drive. Nobody, and I tried, was concerned about Saudi women being flogged and even occasionally stoned to death for sexual offenses, which actually, Islamically, were impossible to prove in the circumstances. Nobody cared about that. But they are deeply concerned about the presence, compulsory presence, of a piece of scarf on the head of Iranian women. You'll get where I'm coming from here. This hypocrisy lays bare the color revolution, regime change nature of the events that are taking place in Iran. After all, if we were really against hijabbing women, we wouldn't have spent the last decade and more arming, funding, and proselytizing for ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the alphabet soup of Islamist extremism in Syria, which continues to occupy a part of the Syrian Arab Republic under the tutelage and at the expense of Western taxpayers. If we were concerned about the rights of women, we would not have spent an entire decade supporting the fathers of the Taliban and allowing them, helping them to lay Afghanistan waste on the principle that we didn't like the socialist secular government that was in power in Afghanistan during the 1980s. Hypocrites with a capital H are the commentators complaining about the situation in Iran. Now, I, as I said on Wednesday, am wholly against compulsion in religion. As a matter of fact, so is the Islamic religion. So I don't get where, from where, the authority to instruct women on legal pain of dressing in this way or that actually even comes from. So I'm not making light of the demonstrations, the protests, and the violence with which these protests have been conducted and have been responded to with. Because it takes two to tango. You can't light a fire without a spark. As anyone who's watched the ghastly, awful scenes from the football game in Indonesia, in the hometown of my own mother-in-law, can say the, the crowd behaved abominably. But if the police behave in response even more abominably, you get the kind of tragedy that has just occurred in that football stadium in Malang, where at least 125 football fans have been killed at a football match. And perhaps as many as 200 and more than 100 are seriously injured and in hospital. So I'm not in any doubt. Either that there are legitimate reasons for protest in Iran, and the best way to deal with those legitimate reasons is to allow Iran to breathe as a normal country, allow it to trade, allow it to bank, allow it to buy, allow it to sell, and stop besieging it. If you did that, you might find that the political dynamics that were thus unleashed 
might be things that you would approve of rather than the disapproval you currently feel for Iran. Now let me turn to Russia. So much has been happening, so little have I time in this monologue. I'm going to uh, restrict my remarks to two, perhaps three, very important specifics. The first one is the Putin speech to which I referred in my opening uh, to the show. Putin, fresh as a daisy, brimming with health, with vim, with confidence, with ability, yes, ability, no point in looking away. Joe Biden couldn't have made those two speeches in the Kremlin and in the Red Square. He wouldn't have been able to find his way from one to the other. He would have soiled his pants on the way from one to the other. Joe Biden is a blithering idiot. Putin, on the evidence of this week, is in fighting form, as well he might be, because Russia gained uh, 9 million new Russian citizens. It made Ukraine 20% smaller by the acceptance of the referendum results in the eastern Ukrainian provinces, formerly self-declared independent republics. Of course, the war, and in particular the call-up, has lost Russia about 250,000 liberals, and Putin will not be crying about that. They have gone to uh, greener pastures, you might say, although how well they'll be treated on those greener pastures is questionable given the Russian citizens who long ago sided with Ukraine and went to live there but have now been deracinated and deprived of any kind of national status are currently finding out. But a trade of 250,000 liberals for 9 million people that actually want to be Russians is enough to make Putin sing. And sing he did. And he made a speech, a critique of the state we're in, of the world we're in, of the social structures we're in, that if any Western politician, political leader, was capable of speaking about those things in that way, with that vigor, would be swept to power. What did he say? He stood up for the Russian people, their culture, their language, their people. Not other people, not people from anywhere, not people from everywhere, but for his own people which most people think is the job of a national political leader, but doesn't seem to be in the job description of most of the Western political class. Secondly, he talked about Russian values, Christian values, orthodox values, which most people in Russia support. But get this. Most people in most Western countries support. When he talked about mom and dad, not parent one and parent two. When he talked about mother, not birthing partner. When he talked about breastfeeding, he didn't talk about chest feeding. When he said there were two sexes, when he said that children should not be being as children, 
allowed to do things that will change the course of their life ten times, a thousand times more profound than allowing them to smoke or drink alcohol or even take drugs. Children taking life-altering hormone treatments and beta block. Putin spoke about all these things in words that would be echoed throughout the entire world if, of course, the world had been allowed to hear the speech, but they were not. When he talked about the golden billion of the richest people in the richest countries, I think he was overcounting them, but that's what he said. The golden billion who live lives of plenty at the expense of the other seven billion people in the world whose development, whose right to development is threatened by greenery and quackery and imperial conquest and corporate rapaciousness and environmental degradation and so on. He was speaking by definition for seven-eighths of the world and I think many in the golden billion triangles of which he spoke. When he spoke about the need to defend our nation's borders, that would strike a chord in almost every country, certainly in the United Kingdom, whose borders are breached every single day by thousands of military-aged, almost always men, who end up living in four-star hotels on the British seaside at the expense of the British taxpayer for God knows how long it would be recognized in Italy even more so, in Spain uh, even more so. Defending your nation's borders is the essential purpose of a state for which we presumably elect leaders, but they are derelict in that duty, preferring to spend our money on foreign wars, invasions, occupations, to deny and destroy economic opportunity in our own countries for the edification of another country, in the case of the United States of America, because that is what we have done. We have destroyed our own and the European economy in the interests of the United States of America and in no other interest. And anyone who believes otherwise has been fooled or is a fool. If it's the first, it's my job to persuade them otherwise. If it is the latter, there's no hope. But my experience in life on all platforms is that if properly explained, these simple facts and realities can cut through and can persuade and can convert. The greatest act of terrorism in the world since 9-11-2001 took place last week. The fact that it's already disappeared into the memory hole and is not the biggest journalistic story in the world today is scarcely a journalistic story in the world today is proof positive that Joe Biden was the terrorist. The blowing up of two pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, released into the atmosphere enough methane 
to power the entire industrialized economy for an entire year and the greenery is nowhere to be found denouncing it. Russia was robbed of between 600 and 800 million dollars worth of gas that is now bubbling in the sea. And none of those who say they care about a rules-based order, about the rule of law, are anywhere to be found. Germany's economy was just murdered in a terrorist act, and no one can be found to denounce it. This act of terrorism, international terrorism, international state terrorism, ought to be the major story in the world's media, but has disappeared from the world's media. They spent a day or two trying to claim that Russia blew up its own pipeline, blew its own $800 million, deprived itself of the leverage, of being able to switch on, switch off the supply of gas to Europe, but only someone wrapped up in a straitjacket in Ward 5 of Broadmoor Hospital for the criminally insane could possibly believe that. And Joe Biden, <clears throat> no pun intended, gave the lamest of non-denial denials after his press conference in the week. Truth is, everybody now knows the Americans carried out this act of terrorism. But it was not an act of terrorism against Russia, which has got plenty of customers for its gas. It was an act of terrorism against you, against Europe, against the European people and their economy, and from which they may never recover. They may spend now decades lashed to the super expensive, environmentally far dirtier liquid national gas coming from natural gas coming from the United States, for which you have to build new ports, new containers, new areas to receive the tankers that come in with that gas. And having got you over that battle, having hooked you to their monopoly, just you wait and see what happens to the prices. We'll be talking to a considerable expert, George Samuelis, about all of this later in the show. But the fact that Ukraine is now invading Russia rather than the other way about, and don't tell me that the people of these regions had no right to declare themselves independent. The Scottish nationalists are trying to do that right now. The British state in 2014, when it gave them a referendum, if that referendum had gone the other way, Scotland would have been separate, would have been an independent state. Kosovo didn't even have a referendum and was ripped out of Serbia and granted international recognition. It's now a NATO protectorate without a vote having been cast either in Kosovo or in Serbia, whose country it was. And they're now playing in the international football. I see they were in the Nations League this week. Kosovo's not a country. 
Kosovo is a province of somebody else's country. So how come Kosovans have got a right to self-determination, to leave Serbia? But the people of the Donbass don't have the right in a referendum, impeccably carried out, in front of any camera that turned up there, doesn't have the right to leave the Ukraine. It's perfectly absurd, of course. And then I could talk about the Golan Heights illegally annexed by Israel. I could talk about East Jerusalem illegally seized and turned into Israeli territory with the wave of a wand uh, and recognized by the United States. I could go on, but I have run out of time. Uh, now, I've got a poll running. Will you be better or worse off in 2023? Now, speaking personally, I had to vote yes because I could not be worse off in 2023 than I have been in 2022. And I face the future working abroad as it happens. Uh, and uh, I, I face that future 2023 with some confidence. But for most of you, I'm afraid that is not the case. Will you be better or worse off in 2023? In, uh, on Twitter, A, better off 18%, B, worse off 82%. On YouTube, and if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to my channel. Half of the audience watching on YouTube has not yet subscribed. It costs you nothing, but it will help me algorithmically. So subscribe and like please, if you're watching on YouTube. On YouTube, 15% of you think you'll be better off in 2023. 85% of you think you'll be worse off. And on Telegram, do follow me on Telegram, t.me forward slash George Galloway. It's 12% yes, 88% no. My good friend, George Samuli, is the Senior Research Fellow at the Global Policy Institute, and, given what I've just been saying, is the acclaimed author of Bombs for Peace, NATO's Humanitarian War on Yugoslavia. Who could be better to talk about these issues than George? George, thanks for joining us. It's been some time uh, since I saw you. I'm very uh, happy to see you again. Let me start uh, with that. Maybe it's a slight tangent. How come the people of Kosovo are blessed for breaking away from the country they're in, while the people of the Donbass are to be damned for breaking away from the country they're in? You are a great intellectual figure. Please explain to the audience. Well, they, to answer your question, they are blessed because they have the United States and NATO in their corner. Kosovo is a particularly egregious case because not only did their separation from Serbia come about as a result of the application of extreme violence by NATO against Yugoslavia in 1999, but they had no right whatsoever to declare independence because, first of all, it wasn't even a sovereign government. Kosovo was under the jurisdiction of the United Nations. United Nations actually was running Kosovo at the time when it declared independence in 2008. And it was in violation of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1244, which said that there are to be no uh, decisions on final status without the full uh, consultation, cooperation, and decision-making 
of the Security Council. But here, the, the, the parliament in Kosovo just declared independence and immediately all of the uh, NATO countries, not all of them incidentally, um, uh, because to this day, four NATO powers and five EU countries refuse to recognize uh, Kosovo independence. That is interesting. Now, uh, let's uh, talk about the uh, Nord Stream. I'm not going to waste time by asking you to dilate on who done it. Uh, frankly, Inspector Clouseau uh, could work out uh, who done it. But what are the implications of it, George? Well, the implications are, uh, as you pointed out, this is clearly an act of uh, terrorism. It's an indication the United States now feels that it can uh, act in this terrorist way uh, without bothering um, in any way uh, about international law, criminality, and all the rest. And of course, it's uh, yet one more indication that the Americans really couldn't care less about the Europeans. I mean, we know that they didn't, couldn't care less about the Ukrainians, that they were ready to fight this war to the last Ukrainian, but they were ready to fight this war to the impoverishment and uh, you know, to hunger of the uh, Europeans. And they've openly said, I mean, Secretary of State Blinken said, hey, this is a great opportunity for us. We're going to make some money here. Um, so, you know, the Europeans kind of have got themselves uh, into this mess. And now, you know, the, the, this is the icing on the cake. You know, the, the, the Americans said to them, don't even think about making any kind of peace with Russia because it ain't going to happen. You're not going to get any gas. So just even stop even thinking about uh, doing anything to resolve this problem. Now, uh, you've got to ask, George, why the European public are going so quietly into this good night. I know that not all of them are, and electoral earthquakes have happened and are to be expected. But by and large, uh, it seems that the European public is at least apathetic about marching over a cliff on the question of whether Kupiansk uh, or Lyman is in Russia or in Ukraine, places that they've never heard of. Uh, I mean, talk about the Schleswig-Holstein question. The Kupiansk uh, question must be even more obscure. How are elected politicians getting away with that? That's a very good question. I think that uh, we've lost any real sense of uh, democratic accountability. I mean, we, we just have governments that in no way are uh, accountable to their publics. I mean, like we recently had uh, Sweden and Finland uh, this governments deciding that they were going to join NATO. They didn't bother to put it to the, uh, the public. Let, you know whether the public should have a say in the matter they just made that decision in other words to put themselves right in the uh in harm's way and that's it i mean you know the public you know, the people don't get any say in the matter it's this the these are these governments so we've really reached a point of really no democratic accountability at all because any politician who emerges, who in some ways is representative of the popular will, you know that he's going to be in trouble in no time at all. You know, it's like there's a there's a deep state in the United States, there's a deep state in uh, Europe as well. You know, and I think that if, for instance, Georgia Maloney, a lot of people putting a lot of faith in her, 
if she were to start tinkering around with NATO policy and questioning sanctions and so on, you can be absolutely sure that uh, suddenly we'll be hearing about secret payoffs, uh, secret recordings uh, in which she had engaged in some suspicious conversations, and she will be out. I mean, it's like, so it's like we know that any politician who bucks uh, the uh, powers that be, and Ursula von der Leyen said the other day, you know, we have ways of ensuring that people stay on course. And that's, uh, that's really, you know, that was a clear threat to her. We, we have instruments uh, to deal with uh, any uh, recalcitrant governments. Now, a lot of these European countries are ruritarian, uh, um, uh, I don't know, kind of apparitions. They're not real substantial states. They have no proper army. They have no proper economy. They are in one way or another dependent on bigger uh, European powers. Uh, but some of them are not. And Germany is not. Germany is an historic uh, and extremely powerful and important uh, state uh, with uh, at least as good uh, a democracy as anywhere else, arguably, given its decentralized nature, uh, slightly better uh, than others. Its proportional representation system makes its elected politicians at least a little more representative than in some other countries, my own included. Uh, what is Germany thinking and doing about all of this? Would, uh, would the Germany of Angela Merkel have gone as quietly into this good night as the Germany of little soldier Schultz? I, I, I doubt it. I, would, I, I think that um, uh, she would have put up a little more resistance, but probably not that much. I mean, we know that back in 2008, when the Bush administration pushed for uh, Ukraine's membership of NATO, and Angela Merkel wasn't happy, and uh, the French president at the time, I think it was Sarkozy, they weren't happy, but they nonetheless went along with it. And, uh, and we've seen this pattern over and over again when it comes to uh, Europe and when it comes to Germany, that well, they, they, you know, they start, oh, I'm not happy about this, I'm happy, and they quibble and whine and, and so on. But eventually, the United States gets its way. And it was the same with Nord Stream 2. So Schultz, uh, at first, was reluctant to uh, uh, terminate uh, Nord Stream 2, but the Americans kept cajoling and cajoling, and there it was. He just simply terminated it completely against German national interests. And you know, we've seen this over and over again, that the Europeans refused to act as sovereigns, as, as uh, the determiners of their own destiny. And so essentially the European Union has now become subordinate to NATO and NATO is of course subordinate to the United States. So, so effectively, uh, European foreign policy is shaped by Washington. There's a Bulgarian election today. Any hope of anything different emerging from that? And Hungary, of course, seems to now be neither married nor divorced from uh, from the rest of the European Union and NATO. Uh, the Czech Republic had 100,000 people out twice demonstrating to unseat their government. 
Are there any signs uh, of uh, European public uprising, however incohate? I think there are signs, and I think from what one can gather, I mean, in, in Bulgaria, uh, some of the, the what the media call pro-Russian uh, parties are doing reasonably well. Um, and then, as you say, we have we've had these massive demonstrations uh, in the Czech Republic. We also have um, the Alternative für Deutschland um, now doing much better in the polls, particularly in the east uh, of Germany. The problem is that it's very hard for any of these uh, movements really to make a breakthrough. I mean, when it comes to the alternative for Deutschland, no political party wants to have anything to do with them. They can win 20% of the vote, 25% of the vote, they'll still be kept out of the government. Um, and again, in the same way that in Bulgaria and the Czech Republic, should any of these uh, parties, you know, criticizing sanctions um, do well in the polls, we know that a great deal of pressure is going to be applied against them. Either they're going to be excluded from government, or if they are going to be in the government, then you know, they'll be on, under enormous pressure from the, the Ursula von der Leyen to uh, get with the program. Hungary is an, is an interesting case, and that's because Orban um, had himself been one of these selected elites. I mean, you know, if you trace his um, history, you know, back in the late 80s, you know, he was the golden boy of the uh, anti-communists. And he went to Oxford, he got money from George Soros, um, but he, he, he abandoned them, he, you know, he ditched them, which is why he generates so much antipathy. You know, he's, he was supposed to be one of the uh, selected elites, you know, who would run things uh, for NATO, and it didn't turn out that way. He turned against Soros, he turned against his patrons, and that's why they, they hate him so much. Very interesting. George, great to see you again. Look forward to Thanks. having you back more often. Thanks for joining us on the Mother Thank you very much, George. All Talk Shows. After the break, it's the one and only legend of Fleet Street. Note to younger viewers and international viewers, Fleet Street was the beating heart of a once great British media enterprise. The newspapers of Fleet Street once dominated the land like a colossus. Now they're all defunct and Fleet Street is full of cappuccino houses. And Martin J is living overseas, the life of Riley, but he has never given up his commitment to truth. And that's what he thinks journalism is supposed to be. I'll be talking to him about that right after the break. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There is no trick other than hard work, creativity, care, and recognizing that duty is more important than love. The booming voice of Robert Maxwell, an arrogant man who used his publishing empire to gain him power and influence. But in this shocking account, never told before in this way, George Galloway recalls his first encounter with Maxwell. It looked like a, a grizzly bear uh, advancing towards me and punches me with these giant fists like sides of ham, right in the solar plexus. So hard that I literally bent double. Then, after George exposed Maxwell as a crook in Parliament, it was war. Every one of his papers, the Daily Mirror, then following the Sunday Mirror, the Sunday People, the Daily Record, then a few days later, the Sunday Mail in Scotland. Even the European, which he then owned all over Galloway. Scottish Daily News journalist Ron Mackay was there. Every night, presumably when he had a drink in him, he would boom over the tannoy about the, 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 the cretins, the fools. The, the majority of the workforce believed that he would take it over and their jobs would be secure. But of course he didn't. He just disappeared. And then... Millionaire newspaper publisher Robert Maxwell is dead. What really happened? Did Robert Maxwell jump or was he pushed? It could be that he went out to, as he did, miturate over the side of the boat. I'm with Ghislaine Maxwell in that I lean towards the murder. This is Maxwell the monster. You said what is my secret. I will let you and your viewers know what it is. I'm not attached to property. Consequently, losing or gaining it means nothing to me. You should follow me on Patreon. Uh, it's got some very interesting uh, stuff on it. I'm about to begin. Uh, in the next week or two, uh, a reading of War of the Worlds, uh, the great uh, classic which caused the reading of which by Orson Welles caused widespread panic across the United States of America. And who knows, maybe my voice reading it will achieve the same. One man's voice has never stilled. That's Martin Jay. As I said, a former lion, L-I-O-N, of Fleet Street, who joins me now Martin, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. It's always a pleasure uh, to see you. Uh, let's start with Britain, if we can. Uh, we both have uh, a particular affection for Blighty. Uh, the rate of inflation by April is currently predicted, at least in the city, not yet by the Bank of England, to be not just double digit, but in excess of 20%. Mortgages just became unaffordable for large numbers of people and people being forced out of their homes uh, will, I think, quite soon become a reality. Gas and electricity has ballooned 
notwithstanding any price caps, which we'll have to pay for in the long run in any case, uh, beyond affordability. Uh, the price of petrol, diesel, foodstuffs, and so on. It's not looking good for the Liz Truss uh, government in London, is it? No, and um, only a matter of days have passed since she's actually taken office. And from what I'm reading today, um, 70 MPs have already um, approached the 1922 committee with letters of no confidence. Luckily for her, the rules state that she cannot be the, the victim of a, uh, an internal coup d'etat within the Conservative Party by um, backbenchers calling for her resignation because she's given one year grace. The rules state you have one year in office before that can happen. But, you know, we've never had a leader in Britain in our political history who is so dim and who has come from such a, well, dubious background. I mean, Truss was originally a Lib Dem. She um, was a Remainer. She believed very strongly in staying in the European Union. Um, and she also called for the overthrow of the monarchy. And then, you know, I suppose it's a testament to British politics that um, the old adage, only a fool never changes his mind, um, stands and is respected and lets people take the post that she does. But she has enormous pressure, unprecedented pressure on her to not only pull off a minor miracle, but to do it in a very, very short space of time. Um, you know, she came to the podium with this promise of this magic formula, which people bought into, people accepted, people thought, um, well, at least the Conservative Party members thought um, could work. But unfortunately, <coughs> excuse me, when you present yourself and your manifesto with a quick fix solution, essentially a, a fiscal um, policy, a fiscal rad a radical fiscal overhaul, people expect that to happen immediately. And of course, um, that isn't going to happen. And I think in the last few days, the decision to shy away from the giants of the newsroom, like um, uh, some of the bigger BBC journalists, uh, uh, the name escapes me of, of, of one in particular, but um, she's gone for uh, smaller, lightweight uh, local radio journalists just recently and got absolutely hammered, torn apart. It was like watching wild dogs um, pull apart a rabbit, I mean, limb from limb. It was just unbearable to listen to it. You know, not, she, she needs media training very badly, but she also um, needs to understand that um, media will hold her to account and media will expect her to deliver in a very short space of time. And that, that's not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. So as we... She didn't even, no, I, ha I, ha I, she didn't even have the basic knowledge, Martin, that on radio, silence is not an option. You cannot pause... Uh, in, you cannot have a, a Pinterest pause on the radio. Uh, you yeah, have you to fill the air up with something. Yeah. Uh, she, yeah. she, she was completely out of her depth in those interviews. Yeah, and um, how long she got, you know, and how long can Britain really entertain this, this indulgence of, you know, going from someone like Boris to, to, to someone like Liz Truss, who is not very bright, doesn't seem to be very sharp, doesn't seem to really understand the issues. And from all I understand, I mean, it's, it's so funny. You know, I'm, I'm practically a retired journalist. I mean, you know, I don't really do the work that I used to do anymore. But I've discovered that two previous friends are now government ministers in the, in the current government. And, um, and I know, well, I won't name them. I know somebody within Downing Street quite well as well. And, you know, the whispers that are coming back to me 
that is that she has deliberately chosen somebody to work on her media side who was well unremarkable let's say underwhelming and i think that's that's a huge mistake and i said in my twitter timeline a few days ago i think the media advisor in downing street is going to be fired and replaced very shortly by someone from fleet street as you like to call it the establishment the, the media establishment yes in yes uh, well uh, we're old enough to remember fleet street but we're also old enough to remember anthony barber the last time a conservative chancellor uh, went for boom uh, without the fundamentals uh, supporting that. Barber's boom in the 1970 to 74 conservative government ended in disaster. For him personally, nobody other than thee and me even know who I'm talking about now, but ended in disaster for the Tory government. Ted Heath had to sit like a like Buddha, uh, on the benches opposite me in Parliament for decades afterwards as the ex-Prime Minister uh, who was brought low by Barber's boom budget. Yeah, and I mean, I, I actually don't remember that. Um, I, I was, um, um, I, I, it didn't quite a feature as I was nine or ten years old at that time. But I, also John Major, if we think about John Major facing um, the pound falling through the floor as well through the Chancellor's um, foolish decisions at that time to pull out the ERM. You know, we, we've got, we're living in a new, a new era, a new generation of uh, youngsters, a new generation of people who don't read newspaper articles anymore, only read headlines. We're becoming dumber, we don't read books. Um, and there is a certain element of instant satisfaction we require from our politicians now. We expect them to be really uh, erudite and alert and, and wary of the issues, unfortunately, we haven't got that with trust. So the question is, you know, how long does it take before the party starts to implode? And she could be convinced to fall on her own sword in the next couple of months and um, and to resign. That, that's the only option I think, which is which is on the table, is whether people who are actually around her will convince her that she hasn't got what it takes to be a prime minister of a country with an economy imploding. Um, largely because of a number of factions. I mean, you know, Brexit and COVID all, all have an impact on the economy, but to sign up to this preposterous notion that as Western countries, as NATO members, that we should sanction Russia on oil and gas, the same oil and gas that we so badly need, um, and then just watch our economies just blow up in front of our very eyes. You know, it, it's all nonsense. It's all, I don't know how we're going to explain it to our grandchildren, um, but I don't understand how Liz Truss in the next few weeks is going to pull off the kind of results that the country needs. It needs some good news. And there is no good news when you borrow market money market, money from the markets at quite high rates to supposedly buy growth. You know, you don't have to be an economist to know that it doesn't work, yeah, not even in the short term. Buy growth and buy, buy your own debt. Uh, that's what the Bank of England had to spend 60 billion of fictitious, fictitious money to buy back our own debt to save the uh, value uh, of the pound and of bonds and gilts uh, crashing through the floor. So uh, we're not just uh, going all out for boom, we're going all out for boom and buying back our own debt, all of it on money that is being conjured out of uh, thin air. But as you spoke there, Martin, 
I got asked what I'm sure most viewers would be asking in their mind. Well, if not Liz Truss, whom? Uh, if she were to fall on her sword, replaced by whom? I don't know, George. I don't, I'm not that um, up to speed on British politics. Um, but, I, I, you know, it's... It may not be somebody so obvious. It may not be one of the cabinet members that have been in the media spotlight. It, it may be um, someone who has an economics background or a business understanding who can put the economy back into place. You know, we've got look, we've got an incredibly important date coming up in August, oh, not October the 14th, where the Bank of England basically stops buying um, treasury bonds. And that's its cutoff point. And that will be a crunch day. That will be a day where I think the media will turn on Liz Truss again and all stick their knives into her, you know, and that, that, that'll be a, a wake-up call for the Conservative Party. You know, so many backbenchers are getting skittish. They're thinking, we're not going to make it to the next general election. This is, a, this is handing Labour um, power on a plate um, in, when the next general elections come if we don't have a strong leader. And I think, you know, one of the whispers I've been hearing also from insiders in Downing Street is that it's going to sound like a conspiracy theory and, and rather far-fetched, but some people are saying this was part of a plot um, to, to actually get Boris to come back. You know, when they realised that Boris had to go because of MPs who were so worried, even though he had a lot of support from the membership. You know, people are saying this is all part of the big plan for Boris to come back in opposition or when the Conservatives lose the next general election. Um, and I, I think um, I believe that. I think there is some truth in this. I think, I think it makes sense entirely. I mean, even if you read the reports and how journalists have quoted Boris, he's not stated that he doesn't want to come back. He has hinted he wants to come back into politics. And, you know, we're living in the era of comeback kids, aren't we? You know, Trump is probably going to come back. We thought Berlusconi might in Italy. It was, there was good money on him to do that. In the end, he didn't. Um, so I think Boris may well be one of those comeback um, prime ministers that we, we, we can expect in the future at some point. But I can't see Liz Truss getting to the next general election. I just can't see it. I can't see her, I can't see her getting to October the 14th. But ha hasn't the media, your former colleagues, decided on Keir Starmer in the way that in 1997 they decided it was time for a Labour Party in safe neoliberal, neocon, uh, pro-imperialist uh, terms. So Tony Blair, having cleansed the Labour Party of its former self persona, uh, it was safe to give power to him. Hasn't Fleet Street and the television companies decided now to do that for Keir Starmer? I don't think they've decided to do that. I think what the difference is between that, that time span that you just um, sketched out is that when you go back to Tony Blair's day, I think that was 1997, if I remember correctly, newspapers, media giants led um, their readers. They led their readers with their opinions, their big ideas, and they brought in the best people, the best opinion writers, the best journalists to present those ideas on a daily basis. So you, you would lead your readership. We've done a complete 180 degrees on that now. You know, media does not do that anymore. Media follows popular opinion. And this is why I think British media in particular is, is dead, basically. It's dead, it's dead in the water because it just follows popular opinion quite religiously, you know, ruthlessly to the letter. And the popular opinion 
is, I think, pushing us towards a Labour uh, win in the next general election. I think that's what people are beginning to, even die-hard Conservatives, are thinking, is this probably what the Conservative Party needs, you know, to, to shake up some of the madness, you know, the madness that produced somebody like Liz Truss in the first place, or even some would argue Boris Johnson. You know, don't we need to get back to um, old-fashioned leaders that are elected on merit and who have got a vision um, for the party and for the country and, and who can solve some of these incredibly um, complicated uh, intractable in problems like thousands of Albanians arriving on the shores um, every day from France, um, the economy, uh, climate change, the environment and our international agenda. You know, we need to get back to being a player. We're no longer a player anymore. We're a very, very junior partner to America on the world stage when we talk about security, defense, and tackling terrorism and, and so forth. You know, with the, the conservatives need somebody who can actually make that happen again. I'm not sure it's Boris Johnson. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering if he's had his time, um, whether he can re reinvent himself again. He likes to compare himself to Churchill, you know, and Churchill came back, um, I was going to say, if you remember, well, you won't remember, you're not that old. Churchill came back in 51. No, but I know he came back many times. Yeah, he came back in 51 and wasn't as good a prime minister the second he ratted time round. and re-ratted. Um, he was a liberal, then yeah. a conservative, then a conservative yeah. uh, and unionist again. He, he, uh, he was a man of many parts. Uh, isn't Boris really playing at being Churchill? He's as much Churchill as an actor playing Churchill would be, a Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yes, he's acting at being Churchill. And he's banking on... You know, a lot of people are not being uh, of the age or even even knowing too much about Churchill. He, he's just he's just banking on a, a snapshot, a postcard of Churchill and, and, and forming a vague resemblance to him. But I think, you know, we are living in an era, though, of very, very weak politicians, very weak leaders all around the world, particularly in Europe. Leaders these days don't actually take decisions. I don't know if you noticed that. You know, they always these days defer decisions to cabinet members. So if things go wrong, they can fire people and they can always remain in power. And Boris did that an awful lot. He never actually took hardcore decisions. And um, I think today, was it today where um, a BBC journalist interviewed Liz Truss and the journalist asked Truss quite directly, was it you yourself who came up with this uh, mini budget? And she said, no, it wasn't, it was my chancellor. And I think that really tells you everything you need to know about Liz Truss and how she has just slotted into this new fad of, of governance, which is to not really govern, not really to make tough decisions. You know, and that's one of the reasons why we're in the mess we're in with Ukraine, because nobody has got the balls to stand up and say, look, we need a, we need a, a joined up thinking, more sober approach to the, the war with Russia, with Putin, because how we, we, we simply can't afford it. I always argue with people on Twitter about you know, whether you're pro-Russian or you're not pro-Russian. I always argue it's not really the point. When we go to war as a nation, surely the first question um, that a leader should ask is not necessarily, is it a moral right? Is it the correct thing to do? But can we actually afford it? Do we actually have the money in the bank? Because wars are incredibly expensive. And leaders of countries these days, and Boris was no exception, leaders never ever think when they go into wars 
that there'll be long wars. They always assume it'll be over in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. They never have a contingency plan. They don't listen to their military advisors to say, actually, this war could go on for quite some time. Have we got you know, the, the, the money to cover it? So I think um, that's also a huge issue now for the Prime Minister. And Liz Trust, unfortunately, is not that smart and is not able to actually join up all the dots herself and realise that you know, the smartest thing for Britain and for Germany and for France is to work out a situation where these sanctions can be reversed and we can accept that Putin is maybe our enemy, but we have to get along with him and accept that for the moment we need the you know, rationally priced energy. As we've gone to the Algerians, we've gone to, to the Libyans, we've gone to the Qataris, and they don't have enough in stock and they're not going to upset their present uh, customers. So we've resort, we've you know, we've gone through all the ideas. Oh, we've gone right. through everything that we can do on that on that but, scale. Uh, so you know, you'll recall, even though you you correctly pointed out you're not as old as me, but, uh, but by jingo, if we do, we've got the men, we've got the money too. Uh, actually, we don't have the men or the money uh, to do the kind of jingoism that we are doing. Martin J, always a pleasure to see you. Looking very well in your uh, North African redoubt. Thanks for joining us. Will you be better or worse off in 2023? That's the poll this evening. Doesn't look great, I must say. Better off 18%, worse off 82%. You'll be very lucky if you are better off next year than this. Very lucky indeed. But as I was saying to a cab driver only today, it is undoubtedly, indisputably true that my generation, uh, our parents knew that we were going to have a better life than them. We'd live longer, we'd have healthier lives, we'd have better houses, better jobs, more secure employment, better wages, a social wage. You know, I grew up in a council house uh, with a clinic at the end, which fed me free orange juice, free cod liver oil, even malt to build me up. I had to stop taking it because it built me up too much. Uh, we had uh, a brand new school at the bottom of the street. We had brand new factories at the top of the street where our fathers worked. Our fathers earned enough money in their trade unionized jobs that they uh, could afford to be the sole breadwinner in the family. We could all live tolerably well just on the father's wage, which meant the mother usually, sometimes not, but the mother usually didn't have to work and therefore could bring up their children uh, properly. We weren't going home to an empty house. We weren't going to childminders and so on. I'm not just being nostalgic here. It was a better country then indisputably a better country then. The state we're in now is very considerably worse, but not as bad as Iran. After more than 40 years of absolute, viperously aggressive and hostile Western policy, including supporting Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran, including supporting the assassination of important Iranian scientists and mathematicians and intellectuals and uh, military commander, most notably, 
uh, but above all, perhaps, of crucifying sanctions that have produced real economic pain and social rupture in Iran, which was indeed what they were intended to do. We now have civil conflict on the streets of Iran. And if you think that Western powers, particularly the United States, are not involved in that uprising, I've got a bridge in London I could sell to you going very cheap. One man who won't buy it is Isa Ali, journalist and analyst who joins us now. Isa, wonderful to see you again. Um, it's not that we're saying there's no reason for anger in Iran, uh, is it? Uh, there's plenty of reason for anger. It's that the Americans are involved in a regime change operation in Iran. That's the bigger question, isn't it? Absolutely. And of course, uh, again, uh, thank you firstly for welcoming me uh, on the show, George. It's great to see you. Uh, and of course, you know, in, in your introduction, yeah, you spoke of how uh, this country that we're in now used to be uh, many years ago and how things are in Iran. And so um, I guess the first place to start would be imagine living in this country uh, with the wealth that the top 0.1% of the country have gathered for themselves over the last 40 years of neoliberalism, uh, the amount of uh, inequality, the amount of pressure, uh, and then uh, add that to if this country had been under sanctions and war, and then had channels from abroad beaming in propaganda nonstop 24-7, you might get an idea of the kind of pressure cooker that Iranian society has become and what it's been subjected to. And uh, of course, there are uh, many factors here at play. And there are many people who in particular uh, support Iran, they support the Islamic Republic, they support the system there, but are also very critical of uh, the internal factors, perhaps uh, mismanagement in some economic sectors, corruption, and other things. But all of that doesn't take away from the fact that, of course, uh, this is very simply yet the latest chapter in the American governments uh, and Israel and Saudi Arabia attempts to launch a color revolution or a color coup in Iran, because, of course, they can't do it militarily. Iran's too strong militarily. Uh, they can't do it, perhaps, uh, through the uh, usual way of maybe a military coup, because uh, in particular, the, the leader of Iran, Said Ali Khamenei, is uh, too respected, too popular, and has the control of uh, the revolutionary guards who are fiercely loyal to him. And uh, so that leaves a color revolution, which has two purposes, really, of course, to destabilize the country and also to uh, cause a cleavage in society as well, because uh, it's essentially a culture war that's being waged in Iran uh, by the West. It is a war which uh, is being waged on the level of, for example, the issue of the hijab, which, uh, you know, regardless of your views of whether or not you think, uh, you know, guidance patrols or morality police, or whatever you name uh, name them if they should exist or not. There are many fiercely conservative people in Iran, and there are some very many liberal people in Iran. And these kind of issues just tear society further apart. The pressure put on by things like sanctions don't help. And uh, I'm not sure if the Americans are really hopeful of uh, overthrowing the Iranian government as such, because they should know, unless they're idiots, that it's next to impossible. Uh, the government still has too much domestic support, people who are willing to go out onto the streets. And I think one thing that's been marked by the last three weeks or so of uh, you know unrest in the country is that Sayyid Ali Khamenei hasn't spoken. He hasn't come out and given a speech. And uh, there are many people in Iran, even his fiercest opponents, who recognize that if he wanted to, 
all he would have to do is say a few words and that would be the end of all of this chaos. But I think he recognises as well that a lot of this anger is rooted in legitimate grievances. Um, there's fierce debate even within conservative segments of society as to whether President Raisi should have uh, reactivated these so-called morality patrols or not. So, you know, it's not a question of, uh, you know, people are religious or not religious or uh, whatever their views are on the hijab or on the, re the role of religion uh, and the state. Uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of plenty, you know, there's plenty of healthy debate going on inside Iran, plenty of criticism going on inside Iran, away from all of these you know, attempts to destabilize the country, destroy the country. Uh, we've been seeing ambulances and fire brigades, uh, uh, you know, fire engines set on uh, fire. The kind of things that if they happened here, people would be outraged and would, and would say, you know, what's this got to do with the protests? And it's uh, the same there. You know, uh, we're seeing these kind of things taking place. And you know, I'm not just I'm just not too sure what effect that's going to have in terms of the popularity of that movement going forward. The, I didn't realize that uh, Khamenei hadn't uh, spoken. That's a very good point you've made there. But something else that hasn't been noticed by most because it's never been shown is that while there are substantial protest demonstrations, they, they are dwarfed exponentially by uh, demonstrations by supporters of the uh, regime in uh, Tehran. Tell us a bit about that. I think the first place to start is when you look at the, uh, Iran and its history, and in particular the legacy of Saddam's war against uh, Iran, is that you've got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, who are the children or the grandchildren or the widows of men who went, in some cases, running into minefields with nothing but their faith armed uh, with them, and uh, who died for the sake of their country, who died for the sake of the Islamic Revolution, who died uh, to protect their people from the harms that undoubtedly would have come if Saddam had been uh, successful. So there are many people in the country who, you know, regardless of things like, you know, standards of living, corruption, uh, mismanagement, all the other things that are aside from the external factors waging war on uh, Iran, these people are, you know, deeply critical of all of these things. But when it comes to the crunch, they know which side their bread is buttered on. And there's no way they're going to stand for uh, the kind of rioting and the kind of uh, things we've seen. And so we've seen huge uh, protests on the street. There's, there's another factor here as well. The uh, armed elements, which are trying to you know, start a civil war, are similar to how Syria started and are trying it in Iran. In Zahedan, I've just seen some footage of uh, the city of Zahedan, where the place just is essentially a you know, uh, it's, everything's all burnt down, everything's all bombed out. Now the government and the uh, security forces have regained control of the city. But just imagine, you know, we've seen protests recently, and protests are going to get worse in Europe, by the way. We've seen in Germany huge protests against uh, the decision to essentially sanction themselves uh, rather than sanctioning Russia. We're seeing people burning their bills in this country. Imagine these protests, you know, uh, grow out of control as they might do these coming months in the winter. And then an armed group tries to take over Bristol or tries to take over Liverpool. I want to see how the media would frame that as freedom uh, movement. Or would they say, actually, hang on a second, these are terrorist groups trying to take over parts of the country. And that's essentially what's happening. And so within Iran, people won't stand for that. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have already come out onto the streets. And again, you know, uh, it, they've come out onto the streets without kind of being uh, prompted to. You know, there's this uh, cliche that, oh, people who... Uh, protests for the government are being paid or forced out of their jobs. But in situations like this, where 
people are very openly protesting against the government, nobody needs to do that. You know, there are very clear lines being drawn within Iranian society. Um, I think what's more concerning for the Iranian government isn't actually the protests themselves. They're not really that big. It's more the social issues, you know, university lecturers speaking out or perhaps uh, not wanting to take their classes and going on strike, actors and celebrities and so on. Now, uh, you know, people will dismiss them as, you know, just being kind of a privileged class, uh, chasing clout, if you will. But, you know, there are real problems there for the Iranians beyond the protests. And I think that's where they have to try to perhaps marry those two sides within society, because, you know, it's growing more acrimonious. Both kind of wings of society, if you will, are starting to hate each other even more. There's one part that feels we're being oppressed. We don't want to live by these rules. There's another side which say, you know, how dare you? We fought or our parents fought and died for this country and for this system and, uh, you know, you don't respect them at all. So there is that sense of a, a division in society. Having said all of that, if, you know, Israel or Saudi Arabia, anyone else gets any stupid ideas and thinks this is a good time to attack Iran, they will see Iranian society rallying around the flag very quickly because no matter what the problems people have within themselves in that country, it's a very fiercely nationalistic country and people shouldn't be fooled by the rhetoric of, Masi Ali Najad and all these other CIA and State Department sponsored actors from outside telling them we need Western help, we need more sanctions, we need more you know, people to die of cancer so that they get angry and their families get angry and rise up. We need airstrikes. Anything that comes from outside will only serve to rally people in the country against the outside threat. Mm. And I think it's important people understand it from that angle as well. An uprising of the kind you described is exceedingly unlikely in Bristol. In Liverpool, not so much. Thanks very much, Isa Ali, for joining us. Uh, let's take a quick break and then it's all yours. Over to your telephone calls. Let's hear from New York, where our good friend Melvin is on the line to talk about Ukraine. Go ahead, Melvin. Nice to talk to you again. It's been a little while. Um, here's the thing. And, and this is something that, that's gotten my attention, especially in the last 20 years, but recently. And as you well know, and I well know, you know, in the Donbass with this referendum and all that, that a lot of uh, people over in our country, well, my country, your country, and, and the ones around, have all said that they don't accept it, as, as you spoke about earlier. But nobody seems to remember or think that, hey, maybe the reason that this referendum went over so much with so many people is the fact that these people are dying from Ukraine. They need protection. And when I tell people this or try to show people this, it's like they don't think about that. And my main question to you with it is because you'll, you'll hear the anti stuff easily. People jump on to it with no problem, but nobody ever thinks about why it could actually be. How do you get people to think about stuff like that in advance? I mean, sometimes they listen to you, sometimes they don't afterwards, but I've never gotten them to think about it in advance. Well, if I had a dollar for everyone that says to me in writing or in person, uh, I never thought I'd agree with you, but uh, that tells me that people can change their mind. Only a fool never changes their mind, as was said earlier by Martin Jay. Uh, when the facts change, so do my opinions. How about you, as Groucho Marx famously quipped? Uh, so we have to keep, we have no alternative, but to keep trying to point out what to you and me is the blindingly obvious. Uh, I gave the examples 
I could give many more uh, of uh, Kosovo, of uh, East Jerusalem, of the Golan Heights, or of Taiwan. How much of our policy is bent towards supporting the breakaway province of Taiwan? How come the Taiwanese have a right to self-determination, but the people of the Donbass do not? And China has not been bombing and shelling Taiwan, killing 14,000 Taiwanese uh, over the last uh, 14 years. But Ukraine has been doing that in Ukraine. So the level of hypocrisy is off the charts, and the rulers know it. The leader writers know it, Melvin. They're not idiots per se. Uh, It's that they can confidently count on the fact that we don't know it. Our people don't know it, or they have forgotten it. And they can confidently rely on a mass media that makes sure that that ignorance uh, continues to be bliss for them. You and I are doing our bit. We're spreading the news of this show. Its audience is in the millions. And when we get our uh, midweek moats, I'm confident that we can eventually reach 2 million viewers uh, per week. Uh, And it's up to us to uh, do what we can to contest Uh, the actually paper-thin arguments of our adversaries, and you and I are doing what we can on that. Uh, Will you be better off in 2023? A huge number of people have voted. You can vote right up to the end of the show, Uh, but only 17% say they'll be better off. I'd like to know who they are, you know. Me, it's obvious, Uh, but I'm not sure that there really are 17% of the people in Britain and around the Western world, uh, who are going to be better off. 83% worse off. On YouTube, 17 and 83. On Telegram, 12 and 88. Now, I'm taking your calls uh, from now until the end of the show, and also reading out as many of your Super Chat donations as I can uh, get through. I don't seem to have a caller on the line, so let me set the scene for what I hope will be a fruitful last half hour or so of of the show. We are talking about the protests in Iran. Are they legitimate? Are they justified? Or are they uh, a U.S. regime change operation in embryonic form? Or, of course, they could be all of those things. We're talking about the referendums in the Donbass that voted in overwhelming numbers, though for those of you skeptical about the numbers, not as overwhelming numbers as, say, the referendum in the Falkland Islands about remaining British, uh, where a far higher proportion of the people polled in the Falkland Islands voted for Britain not as overwhelming as the referendum in Gibraltar, where a far higher percentage of the people in Gibraltar voted to remain British. You need to ask yourself why you believe the referendums in Gibraltar and in the Falkland Isles, but you don't believe the referendums in eastern Ukraine. I have an advantage over you. I saw them happening with my own eyes. 
I actually watched on television the long cues. I saw the people being interviewed. I saw the smiles on their faces. I saw their enthusiasm. I don't doubt the result of those referendums for one minute. And if you do, you need to take a look at yourself and ask yourself why uh, you do. Jason Kane, uh, very kindly, uh, donates uh, one pound on the super chat uh, mechanism. Jordan Kaiser, two American dollars. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, C. King uh, gives one dollar ninety-nine. Thank you, Luis Santos, five euros. Uh, ineluctably, Luis. Talking of Santos, my thoughts are drawn to the election in Brazil, and I look forward to discussing on Wednesday on the final Galloway show the triumph of Louis Lula uh, back to power. Zamo 54 gives 79 British pence. Rus Pesca gives 1,000 Chilean pesos. Thank you so much. Remborn gives 20 British pounds. Wayne Veach gives 32.99. South African Rand. Mr. Lover gives two pounds. I worry for my children's future. You and me both, sir. And Rus Pesca in Chilean pesos gives 1,000. Do you see Russia reclaiming territories soon? No, I hope not. I think uh, we've uh, had enough of that. But if the war goes on and on and on, the terms of ending it will get worse and worse and worse. That's inescapable ineluctable in all history of war and international relations, which is why a peace deal should have been signed in April, as the Ukrainian regime was ready to do until Boris Johnson was dispatched there by Joe Biden, a fool's errand, sending a fool on a fool's errand uh, to scupper the negotiations, put a spike in the wheel. Well, the terms available in April are not available in October. And the terms available in October will not be available in January or in next uh, summer, uh, when this war undoubtedly will continue. Philosophical Poet gives £5. Those that think the US do this to benefit others are of the same mindset that would kill millions of Jews without question. Millions of them in the Eastern Holocaust in Ukraine, of course, under the leadership uh, of Stepan Bandera, who is a secular saint of the Ukrainian nationalists in power in Kiev today. Go figure. Look him up. Let's take a call from Bruce in Adelaide, Australia. Go ahead, Bruce. Uh, G'day, uh, George. I was just ringing in relation to uh, crediting President Putin in relation to what's really happening at the present time. I mean, he fought so hard at the end of last year uh, corresponding between Washington and, and Moscow in relation to trying and avoid any conflict that was going on uh, and trying to protect the Russian people. Um, he had They had the Minsk agreement where, uh, and other agreements to try and neutralise Ukraine, but America keep pouring in uh, weapons, etc., in, uh, in heavy amounts into Ukraine. And... Um, and how he stood up for his country uh, in doing what he did in relation to protecting the people. Um, he actually 
since 2000 and, two, and up until now, he's improved the, the income of Russian people from about $9,000 a year to $29,000 a year. Not the last budget last year, but the previous budget before that. He set about decreasing the Russian expenditure on defence by 50%, and he did this over a three-year stance and uh, he wanted to spend more and more money on his people. Now, when he decided to do this, he called in all these opposition parties, which is about 12, and explained to them what his intentions were. Um, and he was looking for their support, even though in opposition, as to what he was trying to do. Um, and... Uh, what what he's had to do is actually stand up for his country and his people, and I admire him against all opposition. You had uh, America and the West um, rubbing their hands, thinking they've got all these sanctions and all such uh, bases covered, only to sort of fall on their face. And it's going to be become even yeah. worse for them. If only, Bruce, uh, if only your country and mine had leaders that stood up for their people as resolutely as Putin has stood up for the Russian people. If only your leaders and mine had lifted the standard of life over 21 years of our citizens in the way that the Russian citizens' standard of life has been risen. If only the reputation and prestige of our countries was as high around the world as Russia under Putin has come to be, well, we'd be in clover, Bruce. But we're not in clover, we're in the deep doo-doo. Akim is in New York on the Nord Stream. Let's hear from him. Akim, welcome. Yes, sir, Mr. Galloway. Very nice to meet you. Very nice to, to be speaking with you. Uh, I just want to get your take you. on, you know, the whole Nord Stream thing. And I wanted to get your take on uh, Putin's speech is, uh, you know, was kind of my, my questions for you. How, like, did you think it was powerful? Well, uh, was the, 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 I'm not going to waste time uh, on asking who done it, Akim, because mm -hmm. anyone right, with right. two brain cells knows that Joe <laughs> Biden done it. Uh, and uh, the fact that it has disappeared from the media is proof positive that Joe Biden done it. If they really believed that Russia had done it, it would be the number one story in every all media every day since it happened. But it's as if it never happened, even though it has polluted the atmosphere uh, equal to an entire year's production of industry across the whole world. That's the methane leak into the atmosphere caused by this act of terrorism. I thought that, as Bruce in Adelaide was just saying, Putin's speech was uh, outstanding, uh, truly outstanding, outstandingly delivered and outstanding in content. And I repeat what I've been saying for years now and suffered the brickbats, but I say it again that Putin and Lavrov are the two best leaders and foreign ministers to be found anywhere in the world. If you dispute that, give me two to rival them. Put now, put up now, a leader and his or her foreign minister that are as good as Putin and Lavrov. There's a challenge for everyone. Last word to you, Akim.
I agree, boss. Um, very well said. Very well said. Um, so, do you think uh, the Biden administration will face any repercussions for what they've done? One day, certainly on the judgment day, if not before, Akim, God willing. Thanks very much. Trevor is in Portugal on the issue of freedom of speech. Trevor, welcome. Oh, thank you, George. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems today, George, is that, you know, there are people in power that you can't speak to. And they're eroding people's freedoms of expression, opinion, and speech. You know, this is the same thing with Mr. Putin. He's not allowed to speak, like you were just talking earlier about the the crisis with Russia, I agree 100% with Mr. Putin, his stance and everything. But I'd just like to explain what's happening. I've been arrested twice, and I'm a pensioner of 71, walking through borders, these Schengen borders that they call freedom of movement. I've been arrested twice and imprisoned twice in the last 17 months for speech. They've charged me in Switzerland with defamation charges, criminal, with three years prison. They've had me stopped at borders when I've been crossing them. I went to the Supreme Court in Portugal and they laughed and threw it out. I got on a plane, I was flying down to Cape Town and the Dutch stopped me and threw me in prison for 14 days. So, you know, what I'm trying to say here is that without speech and opinion and expression that people don't have, there is no future. And you know, this is happening in the press. They've got control of the press. They've got control of the banking system, everything. It's really seriously for the, for the future, for the kids of the future. That's what I worry about. My life is practically over. I'm 71. You know, well, for don't the future. That because uh, I'll, I'll be 71, uh, uh, not that uh, many years from now. Uh, Trevor, that is an extraordinary story. I can't ask you to be more precise, and you kindly didn't try to be more precise. But the issue of freedom of speech is fundamental. Because if you don't know the other arguments, how do you know your argument is right? If you can't test the course of action you are pursuing against other proposed courses of action, how can you possibly know that the course you are pursuing is the correct one? And that's why John Stuart Mill in Liberty is very clear. Uh, it, we are hurting ourselves by extinguishing the other fellow's freedom to speak. We're hurting him, sure, but we are hurting ourselves because what the other thing may be true or in part be true, and that therefore, not having heard it, we have damaged ourselves. Thanks uh, very much uh, for that. Um, I'd like to sell you a ticket for the mother of all talk shows roadshow, but I'm afraid they've all gone more than a month before the show. But you will see the pictures uh, of it. No, no point in showing that now. The tickets have all gone. In fact, five weeks, I think, before the show, they were all sold. So uh, if you've got a ticket, it's a rare commodity. I don't want to see them on eBay changing hands above face value. Let me tell you that now. Uh, but we will be filming the event and filming interviews with people at the event. Gayatri will 
be conducting vox pops, as we television people call them. And so you'll get to see some of that. Uh, Graham okay. is in Aberdeen. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Graham. Thanks. I'm just pointing to you to ask your views, do you feel we're heading back to left-right in British politics? I.e., look, away from the Westminster bubble, we're seeing industrial action on the picket lines, the post days, and the railway workers, just to name a few. Now, since Liz Truss radical, well, sorry, quasi-quartengs radical budget, mini-budget, I just wonder if the days of social democratic governments are gone. In my view, since Tony Blair came to power in 1997, We've had mainly social democrat prime ministers. Blair, Cameron, and Boris were all social democrats. Or maybe Boris was a Labour man more than a Tory. That's my view. Do you feel we're heading back to the days of left right of getting away with this cohesion that Andy Burnham was mentioning in British politics? Do you feel we're back to left right, George? I don't recognise the terms left right anymore, Graham, to be honest. Uh, because uh, what now passes for the left uh, is so far from my understanding of the left uh, that if that's left, I'm not, if you get my drift. I'm a socialist. I believe in an alternative uh, form of society, uh, but I'm not left. I'm not liberal in any way. I'm not uh, in favor of uh, drugs. I'm not in favor of euthanasia. I'm not in favor of uh, abortion, I'm not in favor of all the uh, identity politics uh, jamboree that has become the left, which is really, for me, a kind of liberalism, a kind of individualism. I'm not an individualist. I believe that we are stronger together than we can ever be separately, that five fingers is stronger when it is one fist. All the Things that used to be ABC about being on what was called the left. I'm not in favor of open borders. I'm not in favor of mass immigration. I'm not in favor of leaning in the interests of the criminal rather than the victim uh, of the criminal and so on. All the things that I think have become synonymous with the left are not things I identify with. So either I'm not left or they're not left, and I believe it's them. Uh, because it's my view, if you support the European Union, you are not left. If you support NATO, you are not left. If you support doing everything possible to break up other people's countries, you're not left. If you support any measure to try and slow, if possible, destroy the rise and rise of China, you're not left. If you want to see NATO defeat Russia, you're not left. So again, either I'm not left or they're not left. Now, the only thing that matters, in my opinion, and where I uh, find common ground, I think, with you, uh, is whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the workers who create all wealth, much of which is purloined by the owners of capital, big capital, globalized capital? Are you on the side of the golden billion that Putin talked about? Or, or are you on the side of the global seven billion uh, who have the gold stolen from them to 
build the palaces of the golden billion. I know where I stand on these things. And, and therefore, for me, it's right or wrong, not left or right. I believe that globalism is wrong. I believe that liberalism is wrong. I believe in the strong state defending its borders, intervening in its economy, making sure that its economy moves in the correct direction, not owning everything. I've never been in favor of that. I don't want to go to a state barber or buy my suit off a state uh, tailor, but I want the state to run my gas and electricity supply. I want the state to run my railway. I want the state to provide those sinews of industrial and economic life in my country uh, without which I can't live. How can I live if water is in the hands of private profit-making uh, companies? What if they decide not to sell it to me anymore? I need to know that the basic sinews of life are under democratic public uh, control. The rest can be capitalist so far as I'm concerned. And I'm not seeking to, you know, nationalize Waitrose, although Waitrose is actually a workers' cooperative, proving that you don't have to be a capitalist outfit to have an efficient and rather tasty shop. Uh, Graham, last word to you quickly. That is a brilliant point, George. I couldn't have put it any better. Now, here's some a quick second point, tongue-in-cheek. Is that block of wood that you've had on your table and your show, Sakir Starmer, potentially our next PM? <laughs> it looks that way. But um, as uh, Dorothy Parker said on hearing the death of Calvin Coolidge, the then president, when told that he was dead, she said, how could they tell? Uh, so uh, Keir Starmer might be the next uh, prime minister, but how could we tell? He'll be no different from that which went before and may even be considerably worse. Thanks for the call, Graham. Uh, Richard is in Wales on Nord Stream. Go ahead, Richard. It's relating to the lack of coverage and my suspicions on a controversial subject that although it's obvious who did this, I'm wondering with the recent delays of our government in the cost of living crisis, whether we as a government might have already been informed about this attack. Uh, yeah, Richard, uh, I'm in no doubt uh, about that. I know that the special relationship ain't what it used to be, but the Baltic Sea is a NATO uh, sea. Uh, the, they boast about that. They're very clear uh, about that. Uh, and uh, the NATO hegemony in that sea is uh, very clear. The idea that anybody else, whether... I mean, they've given up saying it was Russia that done it because you need to be a certifiable insane to uh, believe that, but they began to fly some other kites. Maybe it was Poland, maybe it was uh, Denmark, maybe it was terrorists, maybe it was mercenaries and so on. It was NATO that did it. And it's not possible 
that the United States did not share uh, the planning and maybe even the execution with the most senior, most important members of NATO, uh, at least. So I'm, I'm really sure uh, that the British will have known about it and are therefore jointly uh, responsible for an international terrorist crime of enormous magnitude. This terror attack on the Nord Stream is, as I said at the beginning, the most serious terrorist attack since 9-11. Is that not big news? Just think about that. Our state was the perpetrator of the most serious terrorist attack since 9-11. I mean, how bad does it get? How low do you go? And yet, nobody is talking about it, which is, of course, the final proof, Richard, that it was us what done it. Last word to you, Rich. Hi, George. Thanks. That was great. Um, I just had one other sort of angle on this. Is, is it NATO, i.e. all of the NATO countries in mainland Europe knew about it, or was it just between the US and the UK, therefore not letting the... No, I'm sure that Germany knew about it, Richard. And I know that Germany knew about it because the CIA warned them in writing that they were thinking about carrying out just such attack, uh, such an attack, and some months uh, before. So uh, unless they have literally declared war on Germany, they must have told Germany to look the other way and to make uh, ritual noises about it, but not seek a proper investigation that would prove uh, who the terrorists were. Because, of course, the material itself, the explosive itself, the method of delivery of the explosive, the pods that went down, uh, are all the, the fingerprints of NATO are all over the crime. So you can't have a proper investigation into it, which is why everyone's gone quiet about it because they want to take the steam out of any demand for a proper uh, inquiry. Richard, thanks uh, for the call. You've got about oh, five minutes, 0808196552522 if you're in the UK or plus 18449443344 if you're in the US. Jiggermast sends five pounds and asks, George, do you have Mr. Putin's email address, please? The way things are going here, I want him to annex Cumberland. <laughs> I don't have Mr. Putin's email, and if I did, I'd have to kill you if I gave it out. But I don't. I'm, I, I've said this many times, you know. At least at the last election, if I'd been a Russian, I wouldn't have been voting for President Putin. I have many political differences with President Putin at least on the domestic Russian level. I would have been voting for the leader of the opposition in Russia, who, surprise, surprise, is the leader of the communist bloc in the Duma. Not a lot of people know that because they don't want you to know that, that the polarization in Russia is between Putin and the communists. The rest are also rants. But I think I'd probably vote for Putin at the next election 
given how he's handled the international crises that Russia has faced if I was uh, Russia. Now, of course, I have views which are different to him on the economy and society in general, but the way he has been steadfast in the defense of Syria against ISIS and Al-Qaeda, for example, the way that he has been steadfast in his opposition to uh, the encroachment on Russia's borders by the armed, nuclear armed forces of NATO and the United States. And the clarity with which, especially last week, he spoke about some of the great fundamental issues of war and peace, of justice and injustice, of science and anti-science, of family values, traditional values, if you like, against the, I don't know how to put them. He said perversion. It's not a word I would use, but the moral disintegration and unraveling of Western society is clear in front of all our eyes, and we all know it how our children are turning out, the satanic lure of so much that is drawing our children onto the rocks. We all know it. We all know that our children are not growing up in an environment as healthy as the one we grew up in. We know they're much more likely to fall victim of crime or to become criminals themselves. They're much more likely to fall into the jaws of the drug culture and the crime that associates with it. I had to leave London because I was afraid of my teenage son going to the shops because people were discharging automatic weapon fire in my street over drugs. We know the social, marital, family breakdown that is everywhere all around us. We know how we're being told that we cannot state the bleeding obvious or it will be a hate crime. And the policeman that won't investigate your house being burgled will be round pretty damn quick if you misgender somebody on Twitter. We all know these things, but none of our leaders will articulate them properly and come up with a program of government to address them. But Putin does and did. And that's why he's popular in Russia. And if the people could hear him, across the world too, which is why they've gone to such considerable lengths to ensure that you can't hear him. Ted, oh Ted, gives 20 euros. Thank you, Ted. GG, you're a class act. I commend you for honoring your promise to me to do a show on the USS Liberty, which you honored despite changing platforms in between. I had one euro, he says, on a Foden hat-trick at 66 to 1 today. Here's 20. Ted, you've broken my heart and filled it with joy at the same time. 
only those of you who follow football in the Premier League will know how painful to me that result was. Greta Pansini and uh, Guata, who's a Guatemalan, uh, gives Guatemalan Quetzal 70. Thank you, George, for all you do for all of us who believe in truth and sense in this crazy world. May God go with you, Greta, and all the people uh, of the countries of the world fighting for justice, fighting for a better life and a better world for all of us. May God bless Brazil and may God preserve President Lula, whom I fully expect to be sworn in tomorrow. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was. Damien Sullivan gives 20 pounds. Your show needs to be on the school curriculum, George, and teach the kids real life. Well, we can all show our kids the show. We can all make sure that our children are exposed to something better than that which they are currently consuming. It's been marvelous. See you on Wednesday for the Galloway Show. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.